Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here, and we are making our way through the New Testament book of Colossians. And if it's your first time here, we normally just sort of teach through books of the Bible here at Westside. You can catch all of these past sermons um, on our website. We've spent quite a bit of time in the book of Colossians, and what we've said is is that the book of Colossians really is all about Jesus, and that's the goal of the letter. The Apostle Paul was a guy who wasn't a Christian, who actually um, hated Christians and actually persecuted Christians, and then he got a clear view of Jesus Christ, and it changed his life. And he goes on to write a majority of these New Testament letters to Christians worshiping in a real context, in a real city, in real time and space. And what we've said is, is that in chapter 3 is sort of a pivotal moment in the letter. And in chapter 3, he says these words in chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, or if then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, up until this point, he's been describing who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and what the cross accomplished, and the payment for our sins, and Jesus being fully God and fully man, and, and just this high doctrinal stuff. And then he switches gears, and he says that now, primarily, we are with Christ, or in Christ. Um, and it's this idea that now when God looks at us, for those of us who have repented of our sin, placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, surrendered our life under his rule and reign, that we are now with Christ. And later on in these verses, he says to then seek the things that are above where Christ is. This idea of, of, of our mind to be set on heavenly things. And what this does actually um, is it creates a little bit of a conflict for us because we're living on earth or we're living in the world and the world has its own standards and its own way of living. But for us, we are citizens of the kingdom of God that live here on earth. Jesus would say it this way, that you are in the world but you are not of the world. Uh, the Apostle Paul would go on to say in the book of Philippians that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. So what this means is, is that there's an element of the Christian that lives differently than the world in which they live in. 
And, and so whether it's, you know, the way a Christian spends money or, or even in the New Testament, the way the Christian speaks. Um, if, if you're from southeast Missouri and you travel anywhere, what's one of the first things, especially if you go up north, somebody says, where, wow, where are you from, right? And especially when you order sweet tea, right? And they're like, no, we have sweetener. You're like, bless your heart, right? <laughs> bless your heart, okay, right? So, I mean, even the way that we talk, like this culture, we live differently as Christians. And um, as I was thinking about this, it, it's, sort of like, um, it's sort of like the concept of an embassy. Um, I've been reading about World War II and Eric Larson's book about the blitz that happened um, in London. Literally 46 consecutive nights, the Germans bombed the city of London over and over and over and over again. And one of the things that happened in the first bombing, if you were an, an American citizen living in London at the time, you had direct orders to rush to the American embassy there in London. Why? Because the embassy is still like land in a foreign country of, of an ambassador. Um, the definition is this. An embassy is a group of officials led by an ambassador who represent their government in a foreign country. And I love that definition. Because that's what a Christian is here on earth, that we represent the very kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And what the Apostle Paul does today is he zooms in on what our citizenship is and how it affects the Christian home, if you heard those verses read. Originally, I planned to try to make it through all of these verses, but you didn't bring your lunch today. And so I, I don't have time to do that. So what we're going to do today is look at the role of a husband and the role of a wife, and, and what does that look like as being Christians and citizens of heaven here on earth? But the big idea in the thesis is this, that the Christian home is an embassy of heaven on earth. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching in these verses. He's saying that you live in the world, but the home, the home for a Christian is literally um, a preview, if you will, of heaven on earth. Now, I know what some of you are saying. Uh, not my home, buddy, okay? You must be talking about the cleavers, okay? But listen, what I love about this is that um, that's not the expectation at all. And, and that's not what's in these verses today. And um, if, if anything, I come to you today um, as the chief among sinners, as we talk about this idea of roles of husbands and, and what this is. What we say today, listen, this sermon is not to beat you up, it's to build you up. It's, it's to know that God is doing something in your heart and in your mind and what the goal for the home is. Listen, I believe, I firmly believe, as the home goes, so goes society. I mean, listen, we, you can look back upon history and the Roman government did not fall overnight and it did not fall because Julius Caesar got stabbed in the shower, okay? Listen, you can look back upon history and any time, any time that that society de-emphasizes or changes the roles in the home, there is a wake of devastation that is to follow. And so before we dive in, we have to understand three crucial concepts today, okay? And so these are sort of an understanding before we dive in. The first one is this, is that God created the family. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. 
Uh, Pastor Tyler read those verses. And, and when you hear those verses, they're sort of like a syncopation. There's a harmony. God said, and it was good. God said, and it was good. Listen, um, the Bible doesn't start with sin. Okay, you need to know that. If you have a theological framework that starts with sin, that's a bad theology. The Bible starts with goodness and perfection and harmony. Actually, the Bible starts with original blessing long before it starts with original sin. And we see that God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, in his own image and likeness. And it says that he created them male and female to represent the distinctness of what we're going to learn in a little bit of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, um, equal in substance but different in their roles. And so that was the creation of the family, of the man and of the woman. God performs the first wedding of bringing Eve to Adam. And when Adam sees Eve, Things change, man, right? Because he's naming animals, right? He's like giraffe, hippopotamus. Hey, girl, hi, right? Whenever he sees Eve, things change in the text. And then he breaks out in song and says, this is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. And then it says that, therefore a man should leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It was perfect harmony. And then Genesis 3. So it's not just the idea that God created the family, but then it's this, that, that sin distorted the family is what happened. And, and we see that, that Adam and Eve chose to, to be God rather than worship God themselves. And, and the enemy comes along and just very subtly says this, did God really say? Like, it wasn't some big, and, and by the way, very interesting, very interesting. The first thing, that is attacked is a marriage. Also, in Ephesians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul speaks to the man and to the woman, do you know what verses come next? Spiritual warfare. Then put on the full armor of God. You see, where we're going today, there is pushback, and, and there is a sense of resistance, and I believe it's because sin has entered in, and it's fractured, and it's distorted, rather it be the roles or what God's design for marriage was. And the first thing in Genesis 3, 7 through 8, it says, Then their eyes were both opened, and they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of, the God, of, of God among the trees of the garden. So they were walking with God. Sin enters in and says their eyes are both opened and, and they realize they were naked. Um, you got to understand ancient literature. That represents guilt and shame. That's why later on we see Jesus crucified naked. It's the guilt and it's the shame aspect. I believe the first emotion that Adam and Eve felt when they sinned was shame and guilt. And what does shame and guilt produce? Fear. It makes you run. It makes you isolate. And they hid themselves from God whenever they had a perfect relationship with God. And then God speaks uh, two things. He speaks to the woman, and then he speaks to the man. And in Genesis 3.16, he says these words to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Ladies, you can thank Eve for that, right? In pain, you shall bring forth children... Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. I think we might have the slide so you can see these verses. It's interesting. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Um, very interesting. What we see happen is um, the woman has this pain that now enters in. But then he speaks to desire and says, now the relationship, see, you've got to understand that all vertical relationship with God, our vertical relationship with God is a direct overflow to our horizontal relationship to others. So your primary problem is not relationships with other people horizontally. Our primary relationship is vertical with God. And then it overflows. And then it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now there's conflict. And, and the desire is the same word that's used later on when God says that sin is at your door and its desire is to rule over you. It's literally the same terminology. So what does this mean? What's the effect of the fallout in the role of a woman in marriage? Well, it's a desire to be led by a man, but also at the same time to not trust that man. And now to fight and to go against that. And so what we see is a direct disintegration of that role. But interesting, then God speaks to the man and says this. He says to Adam, because Adam was there with his wife, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Now, you need to know this. This isn't just like, well, you listen to your wife and now you're in trouble. Actually, men, it would do us a lot better to listen to our wives a lot more, but that's a different sermon, okay? What happened was is Eve is talking to Satan, okay, the enemy, and then it says that she gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her. Um, question, if you see your wife talking to Satan, should you interrupt that conversation? I'm, I think so. I think yes. I think you're supposed to step in and go, hey, this shouldn't be happening right now, okay? And so what was Adam's sin? Adam's sin was one of passivity, which I believe that all men innately inherit now, is this idea that they know that they should step out, they know that they should lead, but the idea of the fear of stepping out and the fear of failure. Marty McFly had it best, right? I don't think I can handle that type of rejection. And so it's this idea of passivity that happens to the man, and it says this, you shall eat, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, there's the pain again, you shall eat of all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Interesting. When God spoke to Eve, it was in direct correlation to her relationship with her husband. When God speaks to the man, he says the ground is now cursed. What I think the fallout now is of the role of a husband in marriage is one of neglect. Because now what the man will be concerned with is producing from the ground and providing. But in order to produce and provide, he has to fight that ground. And then in fighting that ground, that becomes the number one priority. And then in return, neglects the woman in which God has given him. That's why anytime you speak to any man, the, one of the primary questions is, how do I find the balance of providing for my family, but at the same time loving and nurturing and being there for my family? To which my response is, when you find the answer, holler at your boy, okay? This is, this is a part of the curse. This is what makes this so difficult. And then notice, no children before the fall. 
Mankind before the fall did not produce or create anything at that point. It was only to subdue and to partner with what God had created. And then we see Adam and Eve produce children and Cain and Abel. And then this is the offspring and what happens. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Literally the first thing that human beings produce after the fall is only death. So what we see is that God designed and created the family and roles and sin has greatly distorted that. And I believe that we're moving so far away as a society that some of the things that I'm like, I have to spend time today explaining what a certain word isn't before I even explain what it is, because that's how far away I believe that we've disintegrated. But there's good news. There's good news. And the good news is this, is that Jesus restores and redeems the family. God created it, sin distorted it, but Jesus comes to restore this. This is why the language in the New Testament of brother and sister and then God being our heavenly father, that there is good news in this. And we actually see this key principle in the text today. There's a primary motivation in the text I mean, in these few short verses, look at how many times the word Lord is mentioned. I mean, like, look, wives fitting in the Lord, children pleases the Lord, Uh, slaves, bondservants fearing the Lord, whatever you do for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. Masters, you have a master or a Lord in heaven. I mean, it's like the Apostle Paul's trying to get something across to us, right? And, and, And listen, the idea is this, that your home, And you, whether you're a wife or whether you're a husband, no matter what your role is, listen, primarily, your primary relationship is unto the Lord Jesus Christ first before anything else. Even children. And and it's so interesting that the Apostle Paul in ancient Greek literature and, and in Roman times even addresses the household, guys. Like, for us, we read this in Western American minds, right? But you've got to understand the Bible wasn't written to us. It's written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It's written to people living in real time and space. And the things that the Apostle Paul does here are very controversial. But they're controversial in a compelling sense for Christianity. And when he addresses the role of wives and husbands, it's literally one word. One word for each of them in light of the fall. And so we're going to spend time looking at wives and then looking at husbands because that's the order that it comes in the text. And so if the Christian's home is an embassy of heaven here on earth, how is that reflected in the relationships? Well, the first point is this. For wives, the word is submit. You feel it in the room, right? (laughs) Right? Right? That's what I'm saying. It's, it's this idea that we're so far gone from something that just reading the Bible almost brings a sense of anxiety. Now, a, a, a couple historical things. Number one, the fact that the Apostle Paul is even addressing women is controversial. It's very compelling that Christianity, all historians would agree, one of the most compelling things as to why Christianity exploded under the Roman rule and reign was its view of women. 
and its high view of women and their dignity and their strength and their honor. Because you have to understand in this day and time, a woman was considered a piece of property. They couldn't vote. They didn't have any rights or anything like that. And then Christians come along and this man, Jesus, has a group of women that follow him. He's speaking to women. These women go out and carry on ministries. So the very fact, number one, that the Apostle Paul is addressing the woman was very controversial. Number two, he doesn't tell her to quote-unquote just obey, which is what the Roman uh, rule and reign would have said. He addresses her as an individual and then says this word of submit. Now, this word means to voluntarily place yourself under. It's actually a military term. So I have to spend time explaining what this term is not before we get to what this term even is. So the first thing, what submission is not, the first thing, submission is not inferiority. Nope, nope, that's not it. It is not, listen, here's the sentence. We believe this at Westside. I've taught this a number of times. Men and women are equal in value and dignity and worth, but they are distinct in their roles, okay? That, that right now in 2021 is a massively controversial sentence, okay? And I'm going to say a lot more offensive stuff before the sermon's over. Welcome to Westside. You chose a great day to be here, okay? But listen, it's this idea that they are created in the same image and likeness of God. They have the same worth and value, yes. And by the way, that the Holy Spirit's terminology in the New Testament is the feminine word for a woman. I mean, it's incredible to understand this. And listen, it's a tension, this is a difficult thing once it's boots on the ground. But we see this in a number of illustrations in our everyday life, equal in value but distinct in roles. I mean, for, for an example, how about your gas pedal and your brake pedal in your car, right? Which one's the most important? And all the uh, speed demons said, the gas pedal, okay, right? right? Both are required. Both are required in order for that vehicle to move forward, but both are very different in their roles and how they accomplish that. Listen, in order for your marriage to move forward, you've got to understand equal in value and in worth, but distinct in roles and operation of that. So it is not inferiority or less than. The second thing is this, it is not absolute. Listen, all women do not submit to all men. Good Lord. That is not what he's saying at all. Look at what he addresses in the text. Wives, submit to, what's the word right before husbands? Your husband. Your husband. This is seen in the covenant of marriage. This is not this idea that in the workplace or this, that, and the other, and this plays itself in a, num in, in a number of different ways, but it is not absolute in its role. It is in the confines and in the covenant of marriage. And then the third thing is this, is that it is not silence. It is not silence. That is, I mean, oh my goodness gracious. We see all through the pages of Scripture, strong women speaking, prophetesses speaking the word of the Lord. The Proverbs 31 woman, that strength and dignity are her clothing and wisdom comes out of her mouth and she laughs at the time to come. We even see in the New Testament, one of these newly saved guys who's preaching for Jesus and he stands up and he preaches this sermon. And then after the sermon, two women pull him aside and they're like, listen, bless your heart. 
you love the Lord, but you need to go to seminary, okay? And they literally like correct his sermon. They correct his sermon and he spends more time. And he goes, that's not what this means, okay? That is not what that means. So, so what is this understanding of submission? Well, first and foremost, Everything that we believe at Westside is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where our theology comes from. Listen, we do not believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is just this thing that you respond to and you say this prayer and raise your hand and then walk an aisle and then you get on to the deeper things of God. No, every issue is a gospel issue. How you view the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Jesus Christ affects everything else. So first and foremost, submission is a reflection reflection of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the divine mystery in Christianity, the Godhead. The mathematics in Christianity is one plus one plus one equals one. One what? One God, three who? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. We have this verse, that the head of Christ is God. Listen, we focus on the shocking aspects of this verse, but we leave out this part. Listen, what this is, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus is saying, God, God the Father, if this cup can pass from me, I don't want to do this and I want a different plan and I don't want to follow your plan to the cross, but not my will, but yours be done. So question, if Jesus does that, then how in the world can the person of Jesus Christ in doing something that's like Jesus be perceived as weakness in that sense? It's a reflection of literally who the Godhead is. And then the second thing is this. Submission is a recognition of God's authority. Of God's authority, not the man's authority. Look at what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. There is no authority that either person carries in the roles of their marriage apart from the, the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has granted. That's who governs it. That's who governs the marriage. That's what this is about. And so listen, it's not this idea of primarily submitting to this man. First and foremost, it's submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, we're going to get to it in just a minute, but I know what some of you are saying, but I can't trust that man. This is what has happened. I understand that trust is built slowly and lost quickly. But what this is implying is, is that you trust that man unto the Lord. That maybe you can't trust him in these roles right now, but you can trust the Lord Jesus Christ in your role. That's the primary position there. And then the last thing is this. Submission is a reflection of the Trinity, a recognition of God's authority, and then this. It's permission for the husband to lead. It's voluntary. It's granted. And we're going to get in just a minute to the sin of the men when it comes to authoritarian leadership and trying to demand your rights and your position. That's so anti-gospel. That's so anti-Jesus. What we see here is that it is granted, that it is given over in response of the initiation to that. And as I was thinking um, about and just praying through what does this look like, 
I, like many of you yesterday, watched the funeral for Prince Philip, and I've just really been into British history, but watching them as they were married for 73 years, they were married together. I mean, it, I mean, it's a bygone era. They lived through World War II together, and the most haunting image yesterday was her by herself in that chapel. Did you see that? I mean, for 73 years, Philip has been by her side. And what was interesting is, is when they were married, their wedding was televised on seven continents. It was broadcast over the BBC radio, and she sparked a little bit of controversy in their wedding ceremony because um, she is going to be next in line. She is going to be the Queen of England. I mean, goodness gracious. And at that time, the Church of England had just changed their wedding vows and took out the portion that is in the scriptures that when the wife promises to submit unto the Lord and unto her husband. And this is right at the height of the sort of women's rights and women being able to vote. And they left that section out. And Queen Elizabeth caused controversy when she requested that the traditional vows be used. Now, question, if she did that, and she was literally going to be one of the most powerful women in the world. I love the idea that that shows that this is not from a place of weakness, that it's from a place of strength, that that's where it comes from. I love what the ESV study Bible says. It comes from page 2528 in the back of the ESV study Bible. Fantastic resource. It says this, Female submission is not servile weakness, but rather a display of strength and trust in God as the woman uses all of her God-given abilities while refusing to usurp the male authority in her life. The fall greatly distorted the harmonious yet distinct way men and women were intended to function together, and God's people are called to show the world how men and women are meant to relate in mutual beneficial ways for the glory of God. Listen, it's a gospel issue. That's why anytime you come along and try to redefine marriage or change anything like that, there's a direct line from that to the gospel because the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, the way that the man loves the woman, the way that the woman loves the man, and then he says this, and I am saying that this refers to Christ and the church. That's what that is. That marriage is a mirror of the gospel. And we have to acknowledge what our sinful, fallen bent is towards that. This idea that to rise up and to usurp that authority. That's what Paul speaks to the women and now to the husbands. The apostle Paul says this, husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. It's interesting, again, that the Apostle Paul writing in a Greek and Roman culture that he would address the man, and even a few verses before, we see this idea that everybody, especially in Ephesians 5, is submitting to one another. Like, we saw just a few verses before that living in community, that we put on perfect harmony, and that we love one another. The Apostle Paul doesn't speak to the man as if he has total authority, which in that context and in that time, he would have. And he says, to love your wives. The word that the Apostle Paul uses is the Greek word agape, which always in the New Testament refers to God's love for his people. 
And, and, and listen, our society is, love has become an idol in our society. We love the idea of love. We're obsessed with the idea of love. So from Nicholas Sparks to The Bachelor to all that, or any of that stuff, okay, right? I mean, when are you ever going to eat Chinese food under a waterfall with a helicopter, okay? Never. You're going to eat Colton's, walk around Walmart. That's what you're going to do. <laughs> to the glory of God, okay? That's what you're going to do. But listen, this stuff creeps in this stuff creeps in, and now in the Instagram life and all of that, we have these subtle expectations of what we think this is. So what is love? How do, baby, don't hurt, right? That's not right. How do we define what love is? Um, let's work with this definition. Love is the self-sacrificing commitment to seek the best for your spouse. Love, agape love, is the self-sacrificing. Well, pastor, where do you get that from? Well, Jesus said, no greater love than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. The emblem, literally for our faith, men, is a cross. It is a cross. It's the self-sacrificing commitment of despite circumstances, despite anything else, that's why whenever I do a wedding, I don't let them write their vows because you're going to say something stupid, okay? And I don't want you to do that because your vows don't have anything to do with that day. They have nothing to do with that day. They have everything to do with the future. They're a future promise. So for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do we part. What you're doing on that day is promising that when that time comes, that when our marriage is at its worst point, I've committed to be here in that moment. That's what it's about. It's a self-sacrificing commitment to seek the best for your spouse. And men, this is how God has designed that the man should function in this role. Notice that when Adam and Eve hid themselves and God pursued them, it said, and God said to the man, where are you? Why? Because listen, of headship, headship does not cancel out um, female leadership, but that headship is the responsibility and role that has been granted. And I've always said that men are like trucks. They drive straighter with a heavier load, okay? Okay. So the problem, what I see culturally, and especially with Christian men, is not that they're going to get burned out with too much responsibilities. I don't think they have enough. I don't understand all this extra time in video games that we have. Like, do you not have a family? Do you not have a wife? I don't understand the extra time because what God has given for us is the highest of all commitments. So what does this look like um, I read an opinion piece about Prince Philip in the New York Times, and it was fantastic. The title of it was Prince Philip, the man who walked two paces behind the queen for the rest of his life. That's what he was defined by. And when they had the coronation service for the queen, so now she is the queen, the ruler of the known world, there was a moment in the coronation service, granted, after their wedding, after the vows, after she said that she would submit to her husband, there was a moment in the coronation where Prince Philip was to go before the queen to take off his crown and to bow his knee and to pledge his allegiance to his queen. And he would say these words, I, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, 
do become your league man of life and limb and of earthly worship. So help me, God, that I will be with you for the rest of my days. And the article said this, that Philip kept that oath for the next 68 years is a miracle not only of the modern monarchy, but also of modern matrimony. I love that. I love the dance that they show of this idea of being equal in value, but yet distinct in roles. And so men, listen, I believe that most men desire to do this. I believe that they just don't know how. Okay? And, and by the way, if, if you're married to a non-believer, that's a different sermon. And if you're saying, do I submit to my husband and he's leading us into sin and all of that? Absolutely not. That is not what you do. But man, I believe that your desire is to do this, but I believe that we've never been shown how because of the great sin of passivity of other men in our lives. And the goal for us is to look to the gospel, is to look to Jesus. And God has designed it in such a way that you are the initiator. So whether it's a conversation that needs to be had, no matter what that is, you initiate and lead that out. And I know what you're saying, but every time I do that, I get a certain response. Well, we're going to get to that in just a second. But listen, I love what C.S. Lewis said. The husband is the head of the wife, just in so far as he is to her what Christ is to the church and read on and to give his life for her. The headship then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we would wish to be, but in the man whose marriage is like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives the least. You see, what I see in these roles is what the husband does is create the environment. Did you know that the word for husband comes from an old north word meaning gardener? And the reality is, is that when we reflect and look upon our marriage, men, if you don't like what you see, the reality is, is you've let something grow that you shouldn't have. And so it's this idea of, of providing the safety, providing this environment for nurture and for growth. But it's like the Apostle Paul was anticipating the argument. It was almost like he was anticipating the man saying, but when I lead, I always get this response. That's why he says to the men, husbands, love your wives. And then here it is, do not be harsh with them. Or some of your translations say bitter, don't be bitter. What does that mean? Well, that is totally out of a response of what your leadership is. And so I think there's two primary ways that men are bitter or harsh in their marriages. The first one is um, sort of an overt or covert way. That's, that's thoughts and expectations. That's you do something, you don't get the response that you desire. So now in your heart and mind, you say things like, well, if I would have done that for anybody else or for these other women, they would have done this. And I'm sure she would be glad to say, well, fine, go do it for them. Then. Or the, like all of this stuff. It's these expectations that you're constantly um, sort of covert. I wish I was getting this. I wish this was happening. And it's sort of a covert way. And then the second way is overt. That's where it comes out in your tone. You use your physical stature to intimidate. You say things like, we're not going to talk about this sermon when we get in the car today. If I would have known that it was about this, I wouldn't come. We're not going to have these conversations. We're not. And it's a domineering aspect in that sense. And listen, all I'm going to tell you is that will always lead to destruction. It will always lead to destruction. 
But what we see is this idea. I love what one commentator said. This is likely, this verse about do not be harsh with them, this is the likely outcome for anyone who stands on his rights alone and who knows and exercises little of the love called for in the first half of the verse. It's this idea of a self-sacrificing commitment and love and binding yourself to that spouse. Listen, the home is an embassy of heaven here on earth. So I want to close in a couple application things that I think will be helpful for us. Um, The first one is this. You can't control your spouse, but you can control your attitude towards your spouse. I don't know what the context is, but, you know, they have a word for people that are struggling in their marriage. They've actually coined it, and it's called married. Okay? So I don't know what your context is, and I don't know what the situation is. And there's probably been some real hurt and some real pain. But what I do know this is you can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude to your spouse. And it's as to the Lord. The second thing is this. Fighting with your spouse and fighting for your spouse are two entirely different things. Please listen to me. Your spouse is not the enemy. There is already an enemy that is wreaking havoc on marriages. We need you together fighting for, cheering for, encouraging. I mean, I mean, pursuing each other in that aspect. And then the last thing is this. The more you grow in your love for Jesus, the more you will grow in your love for your spouse. It's not primarily about them. It's primarily about Jesus and falling in love with Jesus. The natural result is falling in love with your spouse more. Anytime I do premarital counseling, I always draw the picture of the triangle. I put Jesus at the top. I put both of them at the bottom. And I say, as you pursue your relationship with Jesus individually, so you two will be drawn together. But how is this a gospel motivation for us? Well, the reality is this. Only Jesus Christ is the only faithful spouse. Only Jesus is the perfect spouse. You see, his bride is the church. And I love the way that one author put it this way. Every day you and I reject the holiness of Jesus in a million different ways. Only a fraction of which we are even conscious of. If Jesus were keeping a list of our wrongs, if Jesus was approaching this relationship like we do, none of us would stand a chance. At any second of any day, even on our best day, Jesus would have the legal ground to say, enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. You violated my love for the last time and you will always be this way and I can't do this. The truth is, you've never met a more wronged spouse like Jesus. You've never met a more disrespected spouse like Jesus. You've never met a spouse who more than carried their weight in a relationship like Jesus because you see he's carrying this entire relationship on his back. This thing is totally one-sided. And yet, in light of all of our failures and all of our shortcomings, he loves He gives, he serves, he approves, he washes, he delights, he romances, he woos. He doesn't just tolerate us. He lavishes his affection on us and he justifies us and he sanctifies us and he will glorify us. Jesus 
is the perfect spouse. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today and that's what we need. God, we need a picture of you, Jesus. God, I know that marriages are under attack. I know that there is some real heartache in this room. God, what I'm asking is that maybe the emotions, maybe the intensity would just be put aside just through the power of your spirit and that the husbands and that the wives, that they would focus on their relationship with you first, Jesus, and that grace and that mercy that they need to extend, they would first meditate and marinate that they have first received it. God, I pray for the men of Westside, Holy Spirit. God, I pray that they would not be men who are shackled by guilt and shame, but they would be men who are free in their identity with you. That they would hear that their love is not based upon their performance or what they can provide, but that it is a free gift of grace. And God, whatever sin, whatever temptation that they've fallen into, I pray against the enemy, his workers, and their effects. And I pray that they would have a supernatural delight in you, Jesus. God, I pray that they would love the woman that you have given them. That they would nurture, that they would grow, that they would initiate, that they would pursue. God, I pray for the women of Westside that they would be women who are strong in the word, who know their dignity, who know their worth. I pray against the enemy and his lies. God, I pray that any of them shackled by guilt and shame would be free in their identity with Christ and that they would hear that they are a daughter of the one true king and that they can love the God-man Jesus Christ. God, I pray that they would grow in their love and their trust for the husband that you've given them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would compel and empower marriages. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.